his golden shield was uncovered, and lo, it shone like an image of the sun. For morning came, and the darkness was removed, and the hosts of Mordor wailed, and they died. Here comes the sun indeed. It's question time. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Quinya Questions in Quarantine. This is Raleigh here. And Sam here as well. And today we're talking about chapter 11 of The Sun and Moon and the Hiding of Eleanor. But before we dive into the chapter, we're going to have a quick Sindar summary from Samwise the Sindar. <laughs> Thanks, Raleigh. I appreciate the alliteration. Yeah, so last time we had of the Sindar, and the Sindar, remember, are the gray elves a large group of elves who remained behind when the High Elves went over to Valinor. And we learned what the Sindar have been doing for the three long ages of Melkor's imprisonment. Among the highlights, they worked with the dwarves who have arisen from their long, long nap to create Doriath, which is this forest kingdom of Thingol and Melian. And within Doriath is Menegroth, which is the fairest dwelling of any king that has ever been east of the sea. So Thingol and Melian really have some sweet digs that they make underground in the forest of Doriath with the dwarves' help. Then the orcs come down and attack Thingol and Melian and their crew and are beaten back. But Melian creates the girdle of Melian. So remember, she is this demigod. So she creates this big, bewildering protection sphere around Doriath and Menegroth that keeps their kingdom safe, but basically leaves much of the rest of Middle-earth to the orcs or anybody else who wants to be there. And that's where we leave the Sindar for now. And as we move into today's chapter, as you said, the sun and moon... We switch gears yet again, and we leave Middle-earth, and we start this chapter back over in Valinor, where the gods are still bemoaning the destruction of their two trees and the stealing of the Silmarils. But for that, I'll throw it back to Raleigh and the Raleigh recap. Uh, yeah, thanks, Sam. So like you said, we're back in Valinor now, and here we have the Valor who are trying to reconvene after the departure of the Noldor. So Feynor is now in Middle-earth. Uh, some of the other Noldor are up north by that ice bridge. And the Valor are trying to regroup and still help out the elves in Middle-earth. So we have Yavanna and Nienna trying to heal the two trees after the attack from Ungoliant. Yeah. And while the trees ultimately do die, they bear themselves a final flower of silver and a fruit of gold. These are now the two most important objects that the Valor have. So Aule takes the silver and the gold and uses them to create two vessels to hold the sun and the moon for the world. So we're getting all the different Valor together and using all their powers to create the sun and the moon for the world. And if you're like me, I kind of forgot everything was in darkness at this point still. So this is an enlightening chapter, if you will. <laughs> Absolutely. And I do love that 
super group moment for the Valar here. It's like the Marvel Avengers where they all join forces. So you have Yavanna, our project manager, who, remember, first created the two trees of Valinor that brought light to the world. And though those trees have been destroyed, she works with Nienna, who's our HR representative, our god of pity and sorrow. And the two of them manage to get the one silver flower from Tilperion, the silver tree, and a single fruit of gold from Laureline. And then they hand it off to Aule, our foreman smith, who can form these two wondrous tree objects into the sun and moon themselves. And then it says Manway, our CEO, the head of the Arda Corporation, he hallows them, so he makes them holy. And then Varda, our Lady of the Stars, the chairman of the board, sends them up as lights into heaven. And so we really touch on a bunch of our favorite Valar in the Arda Corporation who are trying to turn this tragedy of the two trees being totally destroyed into at least something moderately positive. Although it does say that the flower of silver and the fruit of gold only come from the trees after they've been tainted by the evil of Morgoth's spear and Ungoliant's venom. So they'll never be as beautiful as those trees were in their untouched state. But in a world where those trees are dead, I mean, the sun and moon, obviously pretty important things that go up into the sky out of that. So a little bit of a silver lining. Yeah, definitely silver lining. So as you said, we have the super group, and then they take on two groupies, if you will. So they use two Meyer to guide the sun and the moon across the sky. So the moon rises first, then the sun also arises. And although these lights brighten the entire world, they're not as strong as the light from the trees, which only exists in the Silmarils now. So I thought this was kind of a good context point for just how bright the trees were and how bright the Silmarils are. So you have the sun and the moon, which presumably are as strong and powerful as our sun and moon. And the light from the trees are even brighter than that. And I think it's not just the brightness, but the purity and the wondrous beauty of them. And it is a nice touch point that the Silmarils are more wondrous and beautiful than the sun. <laughs> like, can you <laughs> yeah. imagine, right? Like a single gem or their three Silmarils compared to the sun rising in the sky. So it really does emphasize the point about how sacred and beautiful these three Silmarils are that are now, of course, in Morgoth's crown in his evil fortress in Angband. One thing I want to talk about, Raleigh, now that we have the sun and moon finally in the sky, what a weird way to build the world, right? We're chapter 11 and finally the sun and moon. (laughs) (laughs) What I want to talk about is not just how the Valar create the sun and moon, but really what their purpose is. So it seemed to me it was a way for them to assist the elves in kind of fight against Morgoth. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And my first thought when I first read the Silmarillion was, well, if you wanted to assist the elves, why don't you just go kick Melkor's butt? 
right? <laughs> yeah. Like, like you've done that before. When the elves first woke up, they came and Tulkas wrestled Melkor, threw him on his face, and threw him in jail for three ages. But there's this interesting note from the Tolkien's here about why that's not possible this time. And the answer is because when gods go to war, things get wrecked. <laughs> and not just their enemy, Morgoth or Melkor, but the world gets destroyed. So you remember the last time they went to war against Morgoth, when the elves woke up, mountains got knocked over and valleys were dug up and the whole world changed. And the Valar are worried now that since the elves actually are spreading out and living in Middle-earth, and the men are supposed to show up any day now, and we don't know where the men are going to appear, that if they come out to attack Morgoth again, they're going to inadvertently destroy the children of Iluvatar, who they love and admire. I also think there's a little side note here that obviously they're not happy with Feanor. They aren't going to come and bail out Feanor, who has betrayed his kin, killed the Teleri elves, and exiled himself. So, a couple of different reasons why the Valar aren't going to be so proactive this time to help out in the wars against Morgoth. But instead, they come up with this middle path, which is to send the sun and moon as helpers in that fight as a symbol of the Valar's power and to give hope where it's needed, which I think is a nice idea. So the sun arises in the east. Nobody's ever seen it before, but in particular, Morgoth hasn't seen this before and his folk. And so what do they make of this giant ball of light in the sky? Yeah, so Morgoth hates the new light and attempts to attack the moon and try to destroy it, but to no avail. So he becomes fearful of the sun as it comes to, and then creates a bunch of shadows to hide himself and his servants from the sun. Yeah, he basically runs and hides like he's uh, super pale and is going to get a sunburn. <laughs> <laughs> what I like about that is remember... Melkor felt so good when he destroyed those two trees of Valinor, right? He had Ungoliant suck them dry after he stabbed him with his spear, and he thought, my vengeance is achieved. But I get the impression that he knows where this sun and moon come from. Okay, you destroyed our trees. Well, look at what just the fruit and flower of this tree can do to you. And so the giant sun rises almost like a hey, our trees will live forever as the sun. So your vengeance was not achieved in the same way you meant it. And so Morgoth hates that, of course, and his orcs and balrogs and other evil creatures always detest the sun. Yeah, interesting. One note I wanted to make here, Raleigh, that we don't have to dwell on it for too long, is one of the names for the sun here, Anar, the fire golden. And in one of the elvish tongues, this is actually Anor, which again just means the sun, the fire golden sun. Mm -hmm. And the reason I wanted to point that out is it harkens back to that quote from Gandalf standing on the bridge of Khazad-dûm and facing down the Balrog, the flame of Udun. 
we've talked about that before, but remember that Gandalf says, I am a servant of the secret fire, wielder of the flame of Anor. The dark fire will not avail you, flame of Udun. This is right before the you shall not pass moment in mm-hmm. the movie. And that moment, I am a servant of the secret fire, wielder of the flame of Anor. So we know that that means the sun. And here, now that we have the sun, we can understand what sort of message Gandalf might be sending to that Balrog. Because Mm. we know the sun is the fruit of one of these trees of Valinor. And it is put in the sky as a symbol of the power of the Valar and their help to the races of Middle-earth against Melkor. And the Balrog, of course, is this ancient spirit of evil, and so it would understand this reference. So when Gandalf says, wielder of the flame of Anor, it says, you remember when that sun came up and drove you deep below the earth because you were so afraid? I've got that on my side, just like the Valar did way back here in our Silmarillion chapter. Uh, Okay. I had no idea how epic that battle was. It's one of the few times in the Lord of the Rings series where we have two of these ancient spirits that existed before the world was made interacting directly with each other. They take it way back. Like Gandalf throws out some deep cuts in his references (laughs) to let this Balrog know that he really shall not pass. <laughs> so just wanted to throw that out there, that when we see the sun and moon, that's the power that we now have with this chapter from the Silmarillion. Uh, interesting. And so what I love about that is every time when you're reading The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings and you see a reference to the sun and moon, you get to draw in all of this understanding of the wars between the Valar and Morgoth and the elves caught in the middle and trying to play their part. Perhaps the greatest expression of this power of the sun and moon as not just cosmic objects, but as part of the struggle between good and evil comes in the return of the king. And this is the key quote that I really wanted to focus on today. And I will say that it is perhaps my favorite part of the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy. So I'm very excited to talk with you about it, Raleigh. Well, if that's not epic, then I don't know what it is. Well, we'll see if I live up to it. One little moment I want to touch on, and then I'll go into this longer passage. So we're in the Lord of the Rings. It's the return of the king. Sauron has sent forth his huge army of orcs to assault Minas Tirith, this city of seven levels that we talked about last time, where all of the good men of Gondor are stationed, along with Gandalf and Pippin. The orcs are doing really well in the battle at this point. They've taken over the Pelennor fields. They have pulled up their huge battering ram, Grand, and are breaking into the city. And at this moment, we're going to join. They finally do. The battering ram comes down. There's a huge crack in the city gates break. And in rides the lord of the Nazgul, the witch king of Angmar, this greatest of the Black Riders. He comes into the gate, and Gandalf, sitting on his horse Shadowfax, is there to meet him. 
they say some things to each other, but there's this little aside that Tolkien throws out there that doesn't seem as important to what Gandalf and the Witch King are saying to each other until you think about our sun and moon part from the Silmarillion. So it says, and in that very moment, away behind in some courtyard of the city, a cock crowed. Shrill and clear he crowed, wrecking nothing of wizardry or war, welcoming only the morning that in the sky far above the shadows of death was coming with the dawn. And as if in answer, there came from far away another note. Horns, 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 in dark Mindaluan sides they dimly echoed. Great horns of the north, wildly blowing. Rohan had come at last. So this is our moment when the writers of Rohan, including Eowyn and Mary, finally show up after days of travel to try and bail out Minas Tirith, which is surely going to fall. And it starts with the dawn. So now I want to cut to the perspective of Theoden and his riders. They show up on top of a hill, basically, looking down on hordes and hordes of orcs who have just broken into the city. So things are not looking good. And remember that Sauron, as part of his attack, has sent out this cloud of dark fume that has blocked out the sun from reaching the city so that his orcs can move in uninhibited by the sun, which they hate. And here we learn in our Silmarillion chapter, well, they would hate the sun, right? Because it's from the two trees. So this is going to be a little long, so I apologize ahead of time. But this is the part where Theoden makes his move. The bent shape of the king sprang suddenly erect. Tall and proud he seemed again, and rising in his stirrups he cried in a loud voice, more clear than any there had ever heard a mortal man achieve before. Arise, arise, riders of Theoden, fell deeds awake, fire and slaughter. Spears shall be shaken, shield be splintered, a sword day, a red day, ere the sun rises. Ride now, ride now, ride to Gondor. And then with that, Theoden grabs the great horn of Guthlaf, his banner bearer, and he blew such a blast upon it that it burst asunder. And straight away, all the horns in the host were lifted up in music. And the blowing of the horns of Rohan in that hour was like a storm upon the plain and a thunder in the mountains. Ride now, ride now, ride to Gondor. Suddenly the king cried to Snowmane, and the horse sprang away. Behind him his banner blew in the wind, white horse upon a field of green, but he outpaced him. After him thundered the knights of his house, but he was ever before them. Aomir rode there, the white horse tail on his helm floating in his speed, and the front of the first Aored roared like the breaker foaming to the shore, but Theoden could not be overtaken. Fae he seemed, or the battle fury of his fathers ran like new fire in his veins, and he was born upon Snowmane like a god of old even as Orome the Great in the Battle of the Valar, when the world was young. His golden shield was uncovered, and lo, it shone like an image of the sun, and the grass flamed into green about the white feet of his steed. For morning came, morning in a wind from the sea, 
and darkness was removed, and the hosts of Mordor wailed, and terror took them, and they fled and died, and the hooves of wrath rode over them. And then all the hosts of Rohan burst into song, and they sang as they slew, for the joy of battle was on them, and the sound of their singing that was fair and terrible came even to the city. I think for viewers of the movie Raleigh too, that is like really a top level moment where the charge of all those horse riders come down on the orcs to save the people of the city. Yeah, it's maybe even more epic in the book than the movie. I love the idea that the old Theoden, who basically knows he's going to die, still nobody can catch him. <laughs> he's going to be the first into those lines of orcs. And we have this shout-out here, of course, to Orome the Great. It says Theoden is like a god of old, even as Orome in the Battle of the Valar when the world was young. And Orome, of course, is our knightly recruiter Valar. And it says that Theoden is even as great as he is. So the part I was particularly interested in for today's episode, The Sun and Moon, is, of course, this bit that when Theoden charges, the wind changes, and when he charges down, the sun rises with him and falls upon the orc hosts. And it says Theoden uncovers this golden shield that he has, and it shines like an image of the sun. So he is coming down on the orcs with the full power of this fruit of Laureline, the golden tree coming with him. And I think that that gives even another level to our understanding of the morning coming upon the orcs, because Sauron remembers this time when the sun first rose in the sky and all the evil things had to hide below ground and were upset and the Valor were showing their strength and help to the elves and men in their need. And here it comes again. We're thousands of years later, but here comes Theoden, and he's the sun, and he's coming to get the orcs. You're not surprised that the orcs are not happy about this, and it says they wailed and terror took them, and they fled and died. Can't blame them on that one. <laughs> that was too epic. These moments in the Silmarillion can really tie into the world-building that the Tolkien's are doing. Even the most epic moments of The Lord of the Rings can be made even more epic and intense and meaningful by understanding the backstory of the world that is built in the Silmarillion that we get to have here. Moving back to our Silmarillion chapter out of the Pelennor Fields. So the Valar send the sun and moon to help the elves, knowing that they're not going to go themselves. After they do that, they kind of wash their hands of the situation, don't they? Yeah, so then they just fortify Valinor, they build higher mountains, and make the seas unnavigable. And they're basically locking up and throwing away the key. And no one can come or no one can go. Yeah, it's a little bit like Thingol and Melian did in the last chapter of the Sindar, where they say, we're going to protect our home. Not that we don't feel for you, everybody else, but we're very protectionist at this moment. And I think part of that is that the Valar are still reeling from the trees being destroyed. 
Like they thought they were safe from Melkor. They even thought that Melkor was reformed, which was a really bad call. And now he came to wreck their trees. And so they really lock up shop. And they're also mad at the Noldor led by Feanor. They say, you guys are exiles. You are not coming back. So, yeah, they create this series of enchanting islands between Valinor and Middle-earth that people can't get past. They make the mountains even taller and harder to cross. They basically say, everybody in Middle-earth, here's your sun and moon. Good luck. So you said they're reeling from Feanor, but it's kind of like a double body blow to them with Morgoth as well. So they thought he had reformed. And obviously that was never going to happen. But they were so pure, they never thought he could be evil again. And then Feanor goes off and kills the Teleri and runs away. Yeah, they've been burned. And so now they're reacting. They're trying to be safe now where they were very welcoming before, which is a sad turn for the Valar as well. So Raleigh... The sun rises, and we've talked about all the interesting things that happen once that sun rises for the first time. I picture, like, the beginning of The Lion King, (laughs) (laughs) with the circle of life playing, that huge orb in the sky, and it just changes everybody's view. But we haven't yet touched on the most important thing that happens when the sun rises in the sky for the first time. Yes, next time on Quinya Questions in Quarantine. We add a new race. The second child of Iluvatar. The men.